0: Welcome to the Writing Block Podcast, where we talk all things writing and indie publishing. Today's episode is about writing a subject that's close to your heart. I'm Becca spence Tobias, and I'm hosting today with Michael Hayes, and we're happy to be joined by guest Danielle DeLorenzo. How is everyone doing today? Great. How are you guys doing?
1: good, all things considered. I love my family, so this is all good
0: same right
2: same <laughs> cuz we're
1: really close now so
0: so danielle is a wonderful occupational therapist and she specializes correct me if i'm wrong in mindful movement and mindfulness for occupational therapy and she is currently getting her doctorate in this subject and is going to be writing a book about it so danielle can you tell us a little bit a little bit more about yourself and about your work
2: Yeah. So I have worked in special education in a variety of roles for over 20 years. I'm going on my 10th year as a pediatric occupational therapist. I have worked in early intervention, birth to three for the first 15 years of my life as a full-time job working um, as well, contracting with schools. And then the past five years I've been within the school system And I run an occupational therapy program at a local school district. And I'm currently getting my doctorate with a focus on mindfulness and movement and exploration through the early years and its connectedness to academic performance across a lifespan. So my big thing with all of my experience and all of the children that I've seen if we could get our children moving and engaging, and we consistently provide our younger kiddos with opportunities to explore their environment before we even put a pencil and expect them to write or do any type of academic tasks, we're actually setting up the foundations that are needed within our body, within our nervous system to actually be able to sit and learn. And when children are at risk, Especially kids within that birth to three, or they are suspecting that there is a developmental delay. It is imperative more than ever to get preventative care, early intervention supports and services. Yet for some reason, um, we're still in a hurt. Uh, we just want to wait, wait it out, and you're waiting it out while the brain is actually the most pliable, you know. And it's unfortunate because I wish people would put the connection together. What you do between birth to five will set the stage for the rest of your life. So that's what the book is all about. And it's about my personal experience with now having my own son who is autistic and suffered brain trauma. And now my personal and professional life has kind of collided. So forgive me. It's it's funny. I, I tell the story so much now and I've been on so many podcasts too, but I still, I still get a little... Um,
1: well, of course. Yeah.
0: That's what we want to talk about.
1: Well, I mean, it's obviously, I mean, it's, it's, uh, and I think that's part of the value in, in, writing too, is that you can say what you need to say because talking about it sometimes can just be overwhelming no matter how many times you do it. So when you finally get into a, a medium where you can convey yourself and look at it and put out the message that you need to, yeah, it's, it's, it's cathartic and it's powerful. Um, so yeah, I, mean, bravo. <laughs> No wonder. I mean, if, if both things are crossing together and of course it's emotional. Huge applause for for taking that and using it to inspire because obviously you want to not just take what you know and what you've done and apply it to your, your own family and your son. You want to take that and also give everybody else a chance to work with your expertise, experience, knowledge, everything. So thank you. Thank
0: you. <laughs> <laughs> So, Danielle, seriously, thank you for being so open and vulnerable.
1: Um, Yeah, thank you.
0: Because you were an expert in this before you had personal experience. Uh, Yeah, for 17 17 years before I had a baby. Yeah, because he's going to be three in June. (laughs) Can you tell us what it was like for you as a professional when you first realized that your son might need some intervention?
2: So... I noticed something at week one, pretty much at day one. um, I noticed that the right side of his body was more tight than the left side. But it was so slight that no one was really paying attention to what I was saying. And I just kept kind of moving on. So it was around the um, 11 to 13 month mark where I remember seeing... Um, signs of autism. And I just kept thinking, no, 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 no. This, this isn't going to happen. Because at that time, when I was pregnant and Becca met me while I was pregnant, she um, through a dental birth class. And I just was like, I just want a neurotypical child. When people would ask me what I want, I was like, oh, I just want a very healthy Neurotypical child. I don't care if it's a boy or girl. So it is literally like my worst fear coming true. And not because I wouldn't be able to handle a situation like that, but because I'm gonna tell you, and see, this is the this is the hard part. As a professional, you see all these signs, and then you have the rest of the world telling you, Oh, you're you're just being silly. You know too much. Yeah. You yeah. know too much. And I say, okay, I know, I know. And I said, but something isn't right. And then when he had over 20 words and lost all his words, that's when I knew in my gut that something was seriously not okay. And then he wasn't really making eye contact or pointing or imitating or even communicating at this point. And then we had a lot of self-injurious behaviors like headbanging and hitting and throwing and hitting himself against the the wall, like running headfirst into the wall. And this is my little baby. This is like my 18-month-old now. And I didn't stop fighting. I'm glad that everyone kept telling me that I, I was thinking too much because everybody else kept kind of that typical dream alive for me. Like, maybe I am thinking too much. Maybe I do know too much. Oh, but I'm going to sit here today and tell you, no, I, I, I was correct. hundred percent. There was something absolutely not typically developing about my son. And I had several people in the medical profession tell me, he's fine. It's totally okay. He's totally okay. And I was like, no, he's not okay. And I want a referral. And I had to fight for every referral that I got. And I just remember feeling very depressed because there was this time where I felt like I could have kept doing more. But then there were times where I was like, maybe it is me. Maybe it's me and I'm gonna let it go and I'm just gonna let it go. But every time I let it go, I kept having this gut feeling like something isn't right. And I think that's a mom feeling too. Now, this is my first child, my only child. So I think for me, because we had a traumatic birth, you know, he had two failed vacuum extractions. They couldn't get him out. So, I mean, we lost his heartbeat. He did lose oxygen. The cord was wrapped around his neck and body, but he was fine. Oh,
1: jeez. Wow.
2: You know, everyone's just like, oh, he's fine. He's fine. He's fine. And, he, and, and, you know, dare I say, he doesn't look autistic, which is another problem in itself because you don't look autistic you yeah. are autistic <laughs> and yeah. you're you know like you're dying it's just this whole thing so it's just horrible stigma i am a neurodiversity mama through and through and i believe that all children of all abilities are defined by who they are as people not by what their strengths and weaknesses are but for some reason society hasn't caught up to that yet but i'm hoping to change that
1: <laughs> uh yeah i appreciate that oh wow yes um I mean, even just in my much more limited experience, uh, my backgrounds, uh, I'm a nurse. I've been mostly in ICU and ER, mostly in ER. This year, um, what a heck of a year, was my first year starting as a school nurse.
2: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, that's been wild. Uh, but between even especially ER and all the different kids and different issues and everything that comes in through there and going into a school environment too is seeing all the stigma that comes with things that just people simply don't understand and or won't take the time to understand um it's it's tough it's it's very difficult you know i'm uh, horrified at seeing a lot of it happen and you're seeing that through the eyes of of a mom so yeah no wonder you want to fight <laughs> so
2: <laughs> but but there's there's a right way to fight. Yeah. And I shouldn't say right way. I should just say there is a humble and honest and real way to fight for what you think is right.
0: Can you tell me about or how writing comes into play in that advocacy?
2: Oh, my gosh. So, you know, I started my Instagram mornings with an OT mom just over a year ago. And I remember I started it because the goal was to empower and educate. At the time, I didn't really talk about Luke in the very beginning. I actually just started recently talking about my son and writing about my son and doing letter boards and posts and writing things that I thought my son would say or want to be expressed and just using writing as an outlet. I've always been a writer, but as a researcher, and this has provided me an opportunity, just writing in general. I started it out to be this voice, to share this story, but it, it evolved into so much more. I had no idea how powerful my words could be, how impactful they were. And I had no idea what writing was going to do for me. And when I tell you I I write and I would be hysterically crying while writing, but what has given me strength is all the feedback that I get from parents and therapists and just other people that have come across my story come across Luke's story and they say thank you I've been feeling this way too and you made me feel better
1: yeah
2: and that that is some powerful stuff like I always joke and say people want to listen to me people want to hear me talk and hear what I have to say and each time that I keep doing it it gets easier to write about because The most challenging part is to be able to write while showing my son, like writing with dignity. I always want my son to be reflected and looked at beautifully. So I try very hard when I write and describe him to just make sure I'm presenting him as who he is and not what his diagnosis makes him to be, if that makes any sense. I've been able to do that through writing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, honestly, it sounds to me like you're... um... You're on one of those quests where you're you're writing the book that you can't find anywhere and always needed.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so you're you're living that story and telling it because you know that you you needed that book and and other parents and other people are giving you the feedback like you said, uh supporting that.
0: It really speaks to me, Danielle, when you're talking about your just your need to show your son with dignity. I'm experiencing that and I'm I can't imagine experiencing this in the context of being a parent. But in my book that I'm writing right now about the punk scene where I grew up, I'm writing about my childhood friends, about my whole childhood. And these people have really difficult stories. So people who have experienced extreme poverty, addiction, loss, um, trauma after trauma, but have also perpetuated some of those things have sold drugs, and sexually assaulted people. They're the people of my life. And so I want to do their stories justice, show the complexities of them, show their dignity. And so that's really difficult to me, and I cannot imagine trying to do that with a child. I I haven't taken on writing about my children yet, but I really respect your your quest.
2: It's one of the reasons why I haven't really shown any videos of Luke headbanging or posted about that. I talk about it because... You know, I think first, if we can talk about the things that are hard to talk about, that people kind of don't know how to talk about or don't know or have other preconceived notions of what things are or should be or when they've encountered, like I've had plenty of people stare at me when Luke has been headbanging and kicking me and it looks horrific. But if you actually took a minute and I wrote about it and you read it, it wouldn't, appear as what you saw, if that makes any sense. So it's like, and that's, that's that challenging piece because autism is already a stigma. People already don't know how to talk to you sometimes because, you know, it's, it's, they, they, they're already thinking of it as this, you know, death sentence. And listen, my kid is the coolest kid around. He's going to bring such joy to this world because he's just like any other kid with any other chance to do anything. And yeah, is he going to have some struggles? but don't we all? Why do we have to focus on his autism? Can't we just focus on what he needs support in and provide that support? And when we write about this and when we're being mindful and when we're using our words, we can use our words for the greater good. We can use our words to shift the mindset of the masses. It is possible to do that.
1: It's true. And- I absolutely agree with the video thing because with that comes like the the, the voyeurs, and you're inviting people who are, you know, all the commenters, all the horrible people on YouTube channels who have no bearing on anything whatsoever. It's not proving anything, but there is a power to putting it to word, to spreading a message, and to actually opening a conversation rather than just this one-way video of something that's not even worthwhile. Estimated percentage of his life—that's not right. who he is. Um, I mean, autism has been with us forever we're we're finally learning about it and gathering resources about it and that's that's a good thing having voices like yours are extremely important
2: touching back on how i've changed professionally i have been advocating for all kids my whole life and once my son became everything just focused on being a mom and then now that he you know was Got this diagnosis and all of this stuff, and I started writing about it and researching. I was learning about all these other communities and neurodiver. I didn't even know neurodiversity was out there. I didn't even know about these social learning theories and all these other things that are utilized in how autistic adults would like to be reflected as. or, Or and it's just I'm learning so much, and I think the most important thing that I'm learning is just to respect everybody, and that we all just need. To have a more inclusive mindset and always come at these types of situations with heart, yeah. and and nothing ever malicious. Because if we're always coming with heart, then we'll be able to reach a level of understanding and respect for all.
0: And like saying, Danielle, language and writing is such a great way to <laughs> to put that into practice. It's such a big part of it—the way that we talk about things. It's really clear. I think that your personal experience has shaped your professional view, has has helped it. But I'm wondering if there have been any challenges to writing about something when it's so close to you. And I'd like to hear from you too, Michael, because I know you were working on a book about um, your ER experience for a while. So I'd like to hear from both of you about the challenges of writing something that you feel so strongly about. Okay,
2: so every time I sit down to write something about Luke, it ends up getting changed so many times, or sometimes it'll just come right out. And I think what happens is okay, it's much easier now. I feel like it comes in waves. It depends on what I'm writing about and how close it is to me. There are things that I, because of being a therapist and my nature, I parent naturally with therapist strategies, right? So when I'm writing about, you know, tips and tricks and all that stuff, that stuff's great because I'm able to look at it from a therapist perspective and then put my mom perspective on it. And I think that's what's made the biggest difference for me about writing and where it is a huge responsibility. My voice, what I'm saying is influential and I want to make sure that everything I am saying is rational and logical and pretty much as general as possible because. Even though something might have worked for me, that doesn't mean it's going to work for you. So when I'm presenting information via my written expression, I want to make sure that that is accurately stated because what you start to find is when you put information out there and you don't say things in that clear manner, that's when people can start to misconstrue what you're saying or not accurately take what you're doing and applying it in a way that someone else needs it. So it's like that responsibility of making sure that all those pieces fit. So I think that's the difficult part about writing something so close and always using myself in his example, because not everybody is going to have those same examples. Mm -hmm. But when I was asked to be a part of this video with nine other mothers that talked about if we could go back in time, when we first got our diagnosis, what would we say to our past selves that would help us move forward? So when I was writing about this and talking about this, this was so hard. This was hard because I try to not stay focused on outcomes because I don't know what Luke's outcomes are going to be. His outcomes are going to be more clear as he gets older. And I don't want to miss a moment right now. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to write that and tell that, to other mothers, other parents, other people going through that. And when they read that and see that and being able to articulate that and having part of that story is going into my book. And my book has evolved so much more into becoming a little bit more focused about what my experience was and how it all ties into lifelong learning because my son was very severe, but I worked so hard with him and I didn't stop. And that's why, you know, some people say you can't even see or tell he has autism like, oh, yeah, but he does. So this is what we've been doing. And I just, like, I actually practice what I preached and I put it into writing. And you have to practice what you preach when you're writing with something so close to home, because I am the therapist. I am the mother. And I'm preaching that this is working because it's working for my kid. But here's other ways that you can do. And here's other things that also have to, you know, be taken into consideration. That's a very difficult to do because it's, it's pretty heavy you know like all of it. So yeah. m- managing the emotions and the content and just making sure that what I'm putting out there is beneficial for all and yeah. objective in a sense, not subjective. I mean, part of it is subjective, but then objectively like, look, but it can also be applied here and because of this and if you have this, try this type of thing.
1: Yeah, out of curiosity about how far along would you say you are on this at least first book. I mean, it sounds like it could easily be <laughs> a series like but where are you at right now?
2: So right now I have pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of it all done, but it is not put together because the awesome thing about my doctorate program is that every class you take has assignments that are specific to your capstone project. And for my capstone project is I'm writing a four chapter book about this topic. So all of the mindfulness research Like the mindfulness, you know, without giving too much away, but the mindfulness chapter is all—it's all done now. It's really taking all of my writings and putting them together and getting it through, and it'll be finished by next April. That's awesome. I'm excited.
0: I'm really excited for it. (laughs) So, what about you? Yeah, Michael.
1: Me, the the project I'm doing it almost kind of just started out as just straight up journaling, um, because in my experience nursing, uh, I, I got into it honestly because of a personal experience uh, with family, with other people that I've been with, with just caring for people and just finding kind of a natural draw toward it. And that led me into nursing, which led me into ICU and ER. And I just, throughout my years there, especially in ER, and that's, that's kind of what, what I'm writing. And it's, it's still in first draft, I'm still kind of putting it all together. Um, it's basically at this point, a lot of journaling but it's it's really reflecting a lot on what I see people not knowing about our healthcare system in general, um, which is a lot. Right. <laughs> I'm actually, it, I, I'm really highly considering just turning this into like a series of easier to digest things. You know, maybe something a hundred pages or more, um, but not like because it could easily be this tome of information that everybody would just kind of look at and say, well, that, that'll hold my door open. And because <laughs> it's just it's it's a lot. It's too much. And that's that's kind of the core of the the problem with even understanding the healthcare system and what basically people behind the scenes and everything, what they what they go through, I, I think a lot of it. What I'm writing right now is is partly was born of the conversation I would have with a lot of coworkers um, in the ER, where I, I kind of just would jokingly say, "I wish there were still PSAs like there used to be, like in the '80s." Right. Like I go, there should be a PSA for that. Like there should be a. Uh, PSA for this. And there's a whirlwind of information and opinions and back and forth and everything about healthcare in general uh, without any focus. Uh, people get to pick and choose on what they focus. The reason why I'm uh, drawn to the story basically being from the ER perspective is that no matter what, that's something where pretty much everybody it's its that thing where everybody wants one nearby, but never wants to go to. Right. Even that is kind of a lie because there are people who do want to go there often and And it's a different bit. It really is kind of a strange front lines sort of thing for everybody from the first responders on through that ER situation, that kind of front door to every hospital. And the reason why it's uh, such a huge inspiration for me is twofold. Uh, One, it was my favorite specialty for many years because it was just challenging, um, both physically and intellectually. So it was never boring, obviously. Because you get to be you get to wear all the different hats, everything I did in school and never learned even close to enough about Uh, one bed, you're a psych nurse, next bed, you're an OB nurse, next bed, you're a trauma nurse, next bed, you're a med surge nurse, and those that's your assignment. And then somebody goes and somebody comes in and now you're a pre op nurse, you know, it's like, all these things just kind of keep changing and rotating. But there's a lot more dynamic to it than that. And I know that there's a voice out there for a lot of my fellow healthcare workers, everybody at front lines, uh, everything, even through uh, maintenance and cleaning staff, housekeeping staff. Um, there's just a lot that's going on that is just, it's just, I feel like it's just not told, at least in an interesting way. I, I feel like most of these things come out in a medical bland way. And it's something people choose to ignore. And I enjoy writing, uh, writing about it and journaling about it is has been part of my own therapy because I've I've actually had certain issues, uh, PTSD with it, and I'm living with that and it's worth writing about to get it through. And that's the other piece of the puzzle. It's uh, one half is just you know, there's a whole bit that I enjoyed and had great experience with and I feel like the general public could learn from. And the other part is also my own healing process. So those things paired together, the the reason for the book would be to actually continue caring for the general public after having left the ER, because really, the more you know about it, uh, the better you can manage being there, because I think that's the worst thing for everybody coming to the ER is that you're there. You think you're having an emergency, probably even think you're dying, uh, or you think that your loved one is dying, or you think that something awful is happening. I mean, I've gone there for the same sort of reasons. So all the mystery that comes with that, too, especially like, why are we waiting so long? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, like, (laughs) there are all these questions that I've seen asked and and without the actual anything close to an answer coming, uh, because quite frankly, we don't have time. In the ER, there's not time to answer all the questions, and there's reasons for that too. So it's it's that's just it. Is unfortunately, it's a bit of a rabbit hole. But yeah, that's that's my project. I've rambled.
0: Feeling so close to that. How do you think that's affected the process? Of writing, or how do you think that's been a challenge? Obviously, you having such expertise in it and being so close to it will be a benefit because you'll know so much and you'll have so much heart to put into it. But do you think it being so close has given you any challenges when you're writing about it?
1: Well, it definitely gets tough because what I don't want to do with all the time I've put in and all the experience is just speak generally. Uh, when I write very, like, hugely general things, it's just very bland and nobody's going to care about that. It sounds very textbook. Textbooks are just very general. Um, I have very specific examples of things that can happen, of course, all edited and put very generally to keep in line with uh, federal law if and when this <laughs> thing seems of like day. But yeah, I mean, that's that's just it. There's there's a lot to relive. And I guess it does get hard. But the reason, too, is just kind of keeping eyes on the prize to relive it or rewrite it or, or revisit anything um, that was extremely difficult. It's it's purposeful, both for me to not like, you know, tuck it in and swallow it and pretend that it's not an issue with me still. But it's also to bring things out and not everything's intense, but <laughs> but to bring this, some of it's funny, obviously. But to to actually bring things out and make them more personal, easy to digest and, and, and interesting because there's there's valuable information. I'm not the only ER nurse and hopefully it would open a, a, a discussion because I didn't have time to write this while I was working and I'd like to be a voice for the people I worked with.
0: So with the punk book, you're talking about some trauma that you experienced, Michael, and I no, Danielle, you experienced some trauma with your birth. A lot of what prompted me to originally write about the punk scene is I don't know if I would call it trauma, but definitely difficulties. I experienced sexual assault and discrimination there. And so I'm realizing that. I that still my experience of the scene was only one of a whole lot of experiences there. And so when I wrote the essay that is now being turned into a book, I really focused on my experience, but now I'm trying to make it more multifaceted because I'm realizing there's no way to be objective. <laughs> I think kind of how you were both kind of hinting at, but I want to be very clear that my truth is not the only truth, which is really hard when something is so close and so, so big and so important in your life. (laughs) So I guess my question to you is, to both of you is, is objectivity possible at all? Or are you, are you striving for anything like objectivity? And if so, do you think you're achieving it?
2: (laughs) You know, it's funny, Michael, when you brought up PTSD, because I also have PTSD from my birth And all of that experience and the healthcare system failed me and they did not identify that. In fact, it wasn't identified for almost a year later, I want to say. Could have been more. I don't know. It's all a blur. But I think if you think about it like this, I like to think that I am trying to be as objective as I can. But I think as long as you are being real about the truth that your experiences shape who you are as a person and what your truth is. That when you are sharing these stories, as long as you continue to keep going back to that, I think that's what maintains that objectivity. Like, this is my story. This is my experience. It's kind of like saying how, you know, when you group all all people that have had a baby together and say, oh, well, you've had a baby. So you're good. You know what that's like. That could not be more than farther from the truth as we both know, you know, as we, as society should know, everybody's birth experience is unique and one to themselves. And anyone who did suffer trauma or have their own, truth, they're going to all experience these things in different ways. But as we were saying earlier, there's, it's not that it's a right way But there is a way to try to strive for that objectivity by taking yourself and removing yourself from what has happened to you and reflectively looking at it in a situation like, am I only feeling this way because of this, this, and this that specifically happened to me? Or am I feeling this way because of, a lot of other different reasons and not connected to that specific thing that would be impacting my objectivity. Does that
0: kind of make sense?
1: That makes sense. Yeah.
0: So for example, the first scene that I'm writing about is a, um, a scene where I was in a band called the misogynistas. <laughs> <And> <laughs> <laughs> I wore an apron. I had a painted on black eye. They only let me into the band if I would dress this way because otherwise it would ruin the joke. And I was like, wait, guys, this is actual sexism if you're not going to let me be in this joke band because I'm a woman. And so I had a lot of complicated feelings while I was doing this performance. But in the interviews that I've done, I spoke to somebody who I only kind of knew in the scene and his story, he told me a story about the exact same show about how he had experienced a lot of kind of homophobia and repression within the same kind of like outskirts, like we, our circles kind of overlapped. And in his version, he'd experienced a lot of like repression of who he was. And when he came to that show and he saw us doing this performance in full costume, he thought, man, this is wonderful. I wish I could be a part of this kind of theatric, like goofy, humorous side of the scene. And so each experienced that same moment totally differently and didn't realize it for almost 20 years. And so does, does that mean that my experience was not true? Does that mean that his experience wasn't true? No, they were just two perspectives on the same thing. And so I'm trying to show as many of those true experiences as I can. But just like you're talking about, Danielle, being very open that this was my experience. This was this person's experience. Whereas in the essay that I wrote that first inspired the book, I was basically like, "This is what happened," and it was sexist. <laughs> <Is> that <sighs> right? um, so that's been really tricky. Huh,
1: I can imagine.
0: It's but it's fun and it's good and like you're saying, Michael, it's healing in a lot of ways.
1: Oh yeah. For for me, it has to be a guiding part. I, that's what keeps me writing it. Honestly, I mean, there has to be something self driving to it. I mean, I of course want to. To give, but I mean, uh, if I've got nothing, if I'm not filling myself up with anything to pour out, <laughs> then uh, you know it's tough to put out something that I really am motivated to. And if you aren't motivated, it's hard to write, honestly. <laughs> Just to put it right. simply like that. But yeah, but yeah, I mean, I guess I, a a lot of what I'm writing is is rooted in in empathy on both sides of the aisle. Um, So it's a lot of subjective. There's objectivity in just kind of how things work. But I'd say the the real embrace of it that I'm at least going for is uh, empathy on, on both sides of the aisle to bring the healthcare, the workers, the personal workers themselves, not the system. Like the system is the objectivity part, but the people who are actually working and the people who are patients and Require care. You know, bridging that gap, there's there's a there's an empathy drive on both sides. So there's obviously a lot of subjectivity. There's always going to be subjectivity in regards to every single case and patient and everybody who needs something being different. So that's unavoidable. It has to be subjective to a certain extent, and that's certainly going to be the disclaimer on it. Um, I'm not going to even venture into the idea that somebody comes in with a complaint of chest pain and that 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 every single person with that complaint is going to be the same and treated the same and have the same family, et cetera. Cause that, that would be ridiculous. So there's, uh, there, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I just say it's more sprinkling of objectivity just to <laughs> keep the whole thing glued. Like this is, this is how it works, but it's also how it works at a very basic level. Cause I mean, it's luckily with things being based in science the whole goal is to keep learning and moving forward but there's there's plenty of opinion in there too I will just say that for now
0: Michael you hinted at privacy and HIPAA yeah want to talk about the issues of privacy and confidentiality in your in your work yeah so
2: I can talk about my son I can talk about all his things because I'm his mother right but you better believe I asked his father for permission. Yeah. Now, we're married. We're here. We're all, like, you know, live in the same house. But that's his son, too. And if he didn't want me to talk about our son, I would have never spoken about our, about him at all. It's interesting because when I was uh, doing an IRB, that's what you have to do, like an uh, internal review board for when you're publishing research to make sure that you are... When you're doing research, the subjects that you're using, i.e. my son, are treated ethically and, and well. So like, you know, the National Institution, I think of health or something, they have this, forgive me, I can't, it's been two years since I had to take the course, but you pretty much take this course that talks about how you're going to do no harm. And you're going to maintain this privacy and, you know, and you're going to do well with this. So it's like when I have to move forward with my book, I actually have to have my husband sign off on it because it's privacy and it's HIPAA and it's his stuff too. I'm sharing his diagnosis. I'm sharing information about him. But we're doing that willingly. When I share my stories, if I use someone specifically, I've already gotten permission, but I use a lot of generic general examples to avoid that very thing.
1: These things are absolutely necessary because uh, health information is is health information. It's it's huge.
2: Yeah. And I think it goes back to that whole treating people with dignity. If you are going to be writing, like you're writing about your experiences in the ER, you're not going to be naming people. You're going to be talking about your experiences and certain patients, right, that you've yeah. encountered or certain stories. And there are certain aspects to that where, like in my book, I'm going to be pulling different mom's stories. And I'm going to ask the moms, can I use your story? And if they say no, or can I do it anonymously? Like it's always asking, but they're going to have to sign a consent form. It's all about consent. You always have to have informed consent. And I think that is what's in with research and with writing. That's a big thing when you're writing about true things, right? But then again, these are experiences. And then you're talking about people's like private information. So that's a little different from like a HIPAA standpoint, but like just from like a privacy perspective, I think as long as you're always treating the individual with dignity and have permission to speak about said individual, (laughs) about their stories from them or whoever is responsible, you know what I mean? Like, I think that's the best way that you can maintain that. Cause I've seen what happens when those types of things have been breached. And it's just, it all goes back to that's not treating one person with
0: dignity. Right. And so Danielle and I are both going, we're both going through pretty formal processes where you went through the IRB. I'm doing a publishing process where I'm getting consent from all of my subjects. But I think that's probably an important thing to point out to listeners is even if you are not legally required. Correct. Sure. That you have permission to write about them. (laughs) Yeah. Danielle, do you have any tips for other people who are writing or who want to write nonfiction about something that's a huge part of their lives? I think that
2: When you choose to write about your life and when you are writing about science, that the most important things you can do is to ensure that you have the research to back up the science, the experience to back up what you're saying, and speaking your truths as respectfully and as real and authentic as you can. And in the beginning, I held back a lot. In fact, I have such severe anxiety that the fact of me showing my face on a camera like paralyzed me. And now I'm doing IGTV, whatever that is that I just learned about, you know, cause I'm like almost 38. So this is all, I'm in that, I'm, I don't know what generation that is. Like, you know, like we're on the cusp of tech. We've, we grew up with some technology, but we also had a childhood without it. It's interesting that technology just, you gotta be very savvy on it. But at the same time, When you're going to put yourself out there, be ready for what's going to come back at you. You might not like it. And you got to remember that you're not, don't put out your story for any other reason than wanting to share and just put it out there for the greater good. If you are going to choose to write about your own personal experiences, because that's it. There's nothing to lose. If you are just truly putting your blood, sweat, and tears into a project that is your life and you're writing about it, And you have that research and you're pairing it with these experiences and you're telling the story with treating everybody within it with dignity. You will not go wrong, but not everybody is going to agree with what you're saying, regardless of if it's research or not. Ooh, that's really funny. I love it when people try to argue research. I'm like, but it's right here. And then it's yes. like, they can still, there's still, there are still going to be people that will say that's not correct. And you can't get stuck on that. You got to like, just like, see that stuff doesn't bother me, but I've seen it bother a lot of other people. And I will say like, when you get it, you wonder, you're just like, huh, that's interesting. And then you just got to kind of like, let it pass on by. So you got to be vulnerable. And that's the thing. Like when you're writing about this, like this, this is the most vulnerable I've ever been in my entire life. And I'm literally doing this because if I can have one parent that's going through what I went through, decrease their grieving time or their emotional instability or just how they're feeling or just anything. In the positive, that's amazing. That yeah. that's all it's about, like being able to just help whoever is out there looking for help. It, it's a Google rabbit hole out there, right? You 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 know, you go down it, Doctor Google, everything. Not everything that's out there is research based. Is is based on these things, and I want to put out something that is paired with my experience. Because that's the true showing, hey, look, I have research, I put research into practice. And this is what the outcome is. Not only did I do this with my kid, but I do this with my therapy in therapy for over 20 years. And these are just the general outcomes when you do just these general things, not the specifics, right? Because that's what that's remaining objective. Here's how the path kind of went. And just be ready, because it's going to really unleash a lot of emotions that you might not even know you were holding or carrying or feeling. Because when you write, I mean, you guys know it's an emotional process sometimes. Be ready to really work through what you want to write about and how that comes out. Because I know I've written several things and then all of a sudden I'll reread it. And I'm like, Ooh, I was sad when I wrote this. Let's change this. Let's make this a little more happy. Ooh, this seems angry. Let's not make it so angry. Let's just, I know you're angry about it, but let's, let's do it in a nicer way. It's kind of like when I wrote about that bedside manners, when I had a horrific experience with a neurologist and I'll just stop there. But I wrote about it In a beautiful way. If you all would have saw my first version, it was not a very nice version of (laughs) what I wanted to post out there. But it's taught me a lot of discipline through writing. Just keep fighting, you know, for a more inclusive world. So if you're going to write about personal experiences, just get ready because it's a whole type of roller coaster of emotions in itself.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you're a tough act to follow. (laughs) The only thing I would add to that is uh, expect it to be, to take a long time. It's going to change a lot. And you covered a lot of that, but I'm even kind of learning like it when I took the, when I first started the school nurse job and I was like, oh, okay, I can finally kind of reflect and sit back and think about all this stuff and then you know next thing you know there's a pandemic right the whole thing like the environment changes and a lot of the rules changed and you're like well okay that dial moved a little bit and but also along with that comes with all sorts of new opinions and so really it's it's tough to gauge what people need to hear because it does seem to kind of keep moving especially with what seems like what you danielle would be fighting against a lot is that anecdotal evidence that people love so much now this happened to me one time so that's the general rule now being something instead of research instead of actual like science instead of something it's just a witnessed sort of thing and so therefore that's the rule and it's hard to fight but even if it's not a science-based thing even if it's just uh, something else that's nonfiction. That's just do what you need to do to keep the passion going, to keep yourself motivated, and be patient with yourself and with your story. Just keep at it, and that's good for any book, I would say. And because it's not going to turn around in you know two months, expect it to take a long time. Yeah, how about you, Becca? What do you got to say?
0: I was actually going to share some advice that Danielle gave me when I was talking to her in line at a great little local coffee shop. Like you were saying, Michael, there isn't always going to be your topic isn't always going to have um, a basis in research or in science like mine is not so much. There are the social sciences which cover like musical subversion and musical scenes and sexism within subcultures and things like that. But there's not science about the West Virginia punk scene of the 2000s. I'm the one writing about it, but I still need to be thorough. And so I was talking to Danielle about how I was struggling with a particular person that I wanted to write about who is known to be a perpetrator of violence in the scene. And you know, I can't write a book where I say, and then I heard in the hallway that whoever hit his girlfriend, like that's not a book. (laughs) That's not how you write nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And so she told me, you have to write his victim story, and then you have to talk to him and you have to get his story. Because I was thinking, he's gonna sue me for libel or whatever. (laughs) I can't write. Then I heard in the band hallway, I have to write whoever said this, and whoever said this and tell both of their stories and then let the readers take what they will from this. And that's the way that you can write something that is not necessarily true, but that is not going to get you sued and tells more of the story. (laughs) So I don't know. I guess that's my advice is if you're struggling with feeling like your story is too subjective and you don't have science or research on your subject, you have to just talk to as many people who are around as you can. So Danielle, do you want to tell us where they
2: can find you online? Yeah, you can find me at morningswithanotmom.com. And I also, I'm most active on Instagram. So my handle is the same thing. There's just periods in between the words and yeah that's where you can find me.
0: Yay, thank you so much. And thanks everybody for listening to the Writing Block podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and will subscribe to hear our future episodes. We want to thank the Writing Block community for their continued support. You can find us on Twitter or Facebook or at writingblock.com no K. Remember to subscribe, share, and tell your friends. Thanks everyone and happy writing.